This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kelly Bashare of Mattapoisett, Massachusetts. Don Quixote, Volume 1, by Miguel de Cervantes Saavedra. Translated by John Ormsby. Chapters 36 through 38. Chapter 36 Which treats of more curious incidents that occurred at the inn. Just at that instant the landlord, who was standing at the gate of the inn, exclaimed, Here comes a fine troop of guests. If they stop here we may say, Go diamus. What are they? said Cardinio. Four men, said the landlord, riding a legionetta, with lances and bucklers and all with black veils, and with them there is a woman in white, on a side-saddle, whose face is also veiled, and two attendants on foot. "'Are they very near?' said the curate. "'So near,' answered the lord, "'that here they come.' Hearing this, Dorothea covered her face, and Cardinia retreated into Don Quixote's room, and they hardly had time to do so before the whole party had the hosts had described entered the inn, and the four that were on horseback, who were of high-bred appearance and bearing, dismounted and came forward to take down the woman who rode on the side-saddle, and one of them— Taking her in his arms, placed her in a chair that stood at the entrance of the room where Cardinio had hidden himself. All this time, she nor they had removed their veils or spoken a word. Only on sitting down on the chair, the woman gave a deep sigh and let her arms fell, like one that was ill and weak. The attendants on foot then led the horses away to the stable. Observing this, the curate, curious to know who these people in such a dress and preserving silence were, went to where the servants were standing and put the question to one of them, and who answered him. "'Faith, sir, I cannot tell you who they are. "'I only know they seem to be people of distinction, "'particularly he who advanced to take the lady you saw on his arms. "'And I say so because all the rest show him respect, "'and nothing is done except what he directs and orders.' "'And the lady, who is she?' asked the curate. "'That I cannot tell you either,' said the servant, "'for I have neither seen her face all the way. "'I have indeed heard her sigh many times, "'and utter such groans as she seems to be giving up the ghosts every time, "'but it is no wonder if we do not know more than we have told you, "'as my comrade and I have only been in their company two days. "'For having met us on the road, they begged and persuaded us to accompany them to Andalusia, "'promising to pay us well. "'And have you heard any of them called by his name?' asked the curate. "'No, indeed,' replied the servant. "'They all preserve a marvellous silence on the road, "'for not a sound is to be heard among them except the poor lady's sighs and sobs which make us pity her.' and we feel sure that wherever it is she is going it is against her will and as far as one can judge from her dress she is a nun or what is more likely about to become one and perhaps it is because taking the vows is not of her own free will that she is so unhappy as she seems to be that uh, may well be said the curate and leaving them he returned to where dorothea was who hearing the veiled lady sigh moved by natural compassion drew near to her, and said, "'What are you suffering from, Signor? "'If it be anything that women are accustomed "'and know how to relieve, "'I offer you my services with all my heart.' "'To this the unhappy lady made no reply, "'and Dorothea repeated her offers more earnestly, "'and still she kept silence, "'until the gentleman with the veil, "'who the servant said was obeyed by the rest, "'approached and said to Dorothea, "'Do not give yourself the trouble, Signor, "'of making any offers to that woman, "'for it is her way to give no thanks "'for anything that is done for her.' and do not try to make her answer unless you want to hear some lie from her lips. "'I have never told a lie,' was the immediate reply of her who had been silent until now. "'On the contrary, it is because I am so truthful and so ignorant of lying devices that I am now in this miserable condition, and this I call you yourself to witness, for it is my unstained truth that has made you false and a liar. 
Cardinio heard these words clearly and distinctly, being close to the speaker, for there was only the door of the Don Quixote's room between them, and the instant he did so, uttering a loud exclamation, he cried, "'Good God! What is this I hear? What voice is this that has reached my ears?' Startled at the voice, the lady turned her head, and not seeing the speaker, she stood up and attempted to enter the room, observing which the gentleman held her back, preventing her from moving a step. In her agitated and sudden movement, the silk with which she had covered her face fell off and disclosed a countenance of incomparable and marvellous beauty, but pale and terrified, for she kept turning her eyes, and everywhere she could direct her gaze with an eagerness that made her look as if she had lost her senses, and so marked that it excited the pity of Dorothea, and all beheld her, though they knew not what caused it. The gentleman grasped her firmly by the shoulders, and being so fully occupied with holding her back, he was unable to put a hand to his veil, which was falling off, as it did at length entirely, and Dorothea, who was holding the lady in her arms, raised her eyes, and saw that he who likewise held her was her husband, Don Fernando. The instant she recognized him with a prolonged, plaintive cry drew from the depths of her heart, she fell backwards fainting, and but for the barber being close by to catch her in his arms, she would have fallen completely to the ground. The curate at once hastened to uncover her face and throw water on it. As he did so, Don Fernando, for he it was who held the other in his arms, recognized her and stood as if death-stricken by the sight. Not, however, relaxing his grip of Lucianda, for it was she that was struggling to release himself from his hold, having recognized Cardinio by his voice as he had recognized her. Cardinio also heard Dorothea's cry as she fell fainting, and imagining that it came from his Lucinda burst forth in terror from the room, and the first thing he saw was Don Fernando with Lucinda in his arms. Don Fernando, too, knew Cardinio at once, and all three, Lucinda, Cardinio, and Dorothea, stood in silent amazement, scarcely knowing what had happened to them. They gazed at one another without speaking, Dorothea at Don Fernando, Don Fernando at Cardinio, Cardinio at Lucinda, and Lucinda at Cardinio. The first to break the silence was Lucinda, who thus addressed Don Fernando. "'Leave me, Señor Don Fernando, for the sake of what you owe to yourself. If no other reason will induce you, leave me to cling to the wall of which I am the ivy, to the support from which neither your importunities, nor your threats, nor your promises, nor your gifts have been able to detach me. See how heaven, by ways strange and hidden from our sight, has brought me face to face with my true husband, and well you know, by dear-bought experience, that death alone will be able to efface him from my memory. May this plain declaration then lead you, as you can do nothing else, to turn your love into rage, your affection into resentment, and so to take my life, for if I yield it up in the presence of my beloved husband, I count it well bestowed. It may be, by my death, you will be convinced that I kept faith to him to the last moments of life. Meanwhile, Dorothea had come to herself, and had heard Lucinda's words, by means of which she divined who she was, but seeing that Don Fernando did not yet release or reply to her, summoning up her resolution as well as she could, she rose and knelt at his feet, and with a flood of bright and touching tears addressed him thus. If, my lord, the beams of that sun that thou holdest eclipsed in thine arms did not dazzle and rob thine eyes of sight, thou wouldst have seen by this time that she who kneels at thy feet is, so long as thou wilt have it, so the unhappy and unfortunate Dorothea. I am that lowly peasant girl whom, in thy goodness or for thy pleasure, wouldst raise high enough to call herself thine. I am she who in the seclusion of innocence led a contented life until at the voice of thy importunity and thy true and tender passion, as it seemed, she opened the gates of her modesty and surrendered to thee the keys of her liberty, a gift received by thee but thanklessly, as it is shown by my forced retreat to the place where thou dost find me, and by thy appearance under the circumstance in which I see thee. Nevertheless, I would not have thee suppose that I have come here driven by my shame, and it is only grief and sorrow at seeing myself forgotten by thee that have led me. It was thy will to make me thine, and thou didst so follow thy will, and that now, even 
Thou, though, repentest, thou canst not help being mine. Bethink thee, my lord, the insurpassable affection I bear thee may compensate for the beauty and noble birth for which thou wouldst desert me. Thou canst not be the fair Lucinda's, because thou art mine, nor can she be thine, because she is Cardenio's, and it will be easier, remember, to bend thy will to love one who adores thee, than to lead one to love thee who abhors thee now. Thou didst address thyself to my simplicity, thou didst lay siege to my virtue, thou wert not ignorant of my station. Well, dost thou know how I yielded wholly to thy will? There is no ground or reason for thee to plead deception. And if it be so, as it is, and if thou art a Christian, as thou art a gentleman, why dost thou, by such subterfuges, put off making me as happy at last as thou didst at first? And if thou wilt not have me for what I am, thy true and lawful wife, at least take and accept me as thy slave, for so long as I am thine I will count myself happy and fortunate. Do not, by deserting me, let my shame become the talk of the gossips in the street. Make not the old age of my parents miserable, for the loyal services they as faithful vassals have ever rendered thine are not deserving of such a return, and if thou thinkest it will debase thy blood to mingle with mine, reflect that there is little or no ability in the world that has not travelled in the same road, and that in illustrious lineages it is not the woman's blood that is of account, and moreover that true nobility consists in virtue, and if thou art wanting in that, refusing me what injustice thou owest me, then even I have higher claims to nobility than thine. To make an end, Signor, these are my last words to thee, whether thou wilt or wilt not. I am thy wife. Witness thy words, which must not and ought not to be false. If thou dost pride thyself on what, for want of which thou scornest me, witness the pledge which thou didst give me, and witness heaven, which thou thyself didst call to witness the promise thou hadst made me. And if all this fail, my own conscience will not fail to lift up its silent voice in the midst of all thy gaiety, and vindicate the truth of what I say, and mar thy highest pleasure and enjoyment." All this and more the injured Dorothea delivered with such earnest feeling and such tears that all present, even those who came with Don Fernando, were constrained to join her in them. Don Fernando listened to her without replying, until, ceasing to speak, she gave way to such sobs and sighs that it must have been a heart of brass that was not softened by the sight of so great sorrow. Lucinda stood regarding her with no less compassion for her sufferings than admiration for intelligence and beauty, and would have gone to her to say some words of comfort to her, but was prevented by Don Fernando's grasp, which held her fast. He, overwhelmed with confusion and astonishment, after regarding Dorothea for some moments with a fixed gaze, opened his arms, and releasing Lucinda, exclaimed, "'Thou hast conquered, fair Dorothea, thou hast conquered, for it is impossible to have the heart to deny the united force of so many truths.' Lucinda, in her feebleness, was on the point of falling to the ground when Don Fernando released her. But Cardenio, who stood near, having retreated behind Don Fernando to escape recognition, casting aside fear, and regardless of what might happen, ran forward to support her, and said as he clasped her in his arms, If heaven in its compassion is willing to let thee rest at last, mistress of my heart, true, constant, and fair, nowhere canst thou rest more safely than in these arms that now receive thee, and received thee before when fortune permitted me to call thee mine. At these words Lucinda looked up at Cardenio at first, beginning to recognize him by his voice, and then satisfying herself by her eyes that it was he, and hardly knowing what she did, and heedless of all considerations of decorum, she flung her arms around his neck, and pressing her place close to his, said, "'Yes, my dear lord, you are the true master of this your slave, and even though adverse fate interpose again, and fresh dangers threaten this life that hangs on yours.' A strange sight was this for Don Fernando, and those that stood around, filled with surprise at an incident so unlooked for. Dorothea fancied that Don Fernando changed color and looked as though he meant to take vengeance on Cardenio, for she observed him put his hand to his sword, and the 
Instant the idea struck her. With wonderful quickness she clasped him round the knees, and kissing them and holding him so as to prevent his removing, she said, Will her tears continue to flow? What is it thou wouldst do, my only refuge, in this unforeseen event? Thou hast thy wife at thy feet, and she whom thou wouldst have for thy wife is in the arms of her husband. Reflect whether it will be right for thee, whether it will be possible for thee to undo what heaven has done, or whether it will be becoming in thee to seek to raise her to be thy mate, who, in spite of every obstacle, and strong in her truth and constancy, is before thine eyes, bathing with the tears of love of the face and bosom of her lawful husband. For God's sake I entreat of thee, for thine own I implore thee, let not this open manifestation rouse thy anger, but rather so calm it as to allow these two lovers to live in peace and quiet without any interference from thee so long as heaven permits them, and in so doing thou wilt prove the generosity of thy lofty noble spirit, and the world shall see what the reason has more influence than passion. All the time Dorothea was speaking, Cardenio, though he held Lucinda in his arms, never took his eyes off Don Fernando, determined, if he saw him make any hostile movement to try and defend himself, and resist as best he could all who might assail him though it should cost him his life. But now Don Fernando's friends, as well as the curate and the barber, who had been present all the while, not forgetting the worthy Sancho Panza, ran forward and gathered round Don Fernando, entreating him to have regard for the tears of Dorothea, and not suffer her reasonable hopes to be disappointed, since, as they firmly believed what she said was the truth, and bidding him observe that it was not, as it might seem by accident but a special disposition of providence that they had all met in a place where no one could have expected a meeting, and the curate bade him remember that only death could part Lucinda from Cardenio, and even if some sword were to separate them, they would think their death most happy, and that in a case that admitted of no remedy his wisest course was, by conquering and putting its constraint upon himself, to show a generous mind, and of his own accord suffer these two to enjoy the happiness heaven had granted them. He bade him, too, turn his eyes upon the beauty of Dorothea, and he would see that few, if any, could equal much less excel her, while to that beauty should be added her modesty and the surpassing love she bore him. But besides all this, he reminded him that if he prided himself on being a gentleman and a Christian, he could not do otherwise than keep his plighted word, and that in doing so he would obey God and meet the approval of all sensible people who know and recognize it to be the privilege of beauty, even in one of humble birth, provided virtue accompany it, to be able to raise herself to the level of any rank, without any slur upon him who places it upon an equality with himself. And furthermore, that... When the potent sway of passion asserts itself, so long as there be no mixture of sin in it, he is not to be blamed who gives way to it. To be brief, they added to these such other forcible arguments that Don Fernando's manly heart, being after all nourished by noble blood, was touched, and yielded to the truth which, even had he wished it, he could not gainsay. And he showed his submission and acceptance of the good advice that had been offered him, by stooping down and embracing Dorothea, saying to her, Rise, dear lady, it is not right that what I hold in my heart should be kneeling at my feet, and if until now I have shown no sign of what I own, it may have been by heaven's decree, in order that, seeing the constancy with which you love me, I may learn to value you as you deserve. What I entreat of you is that you reproach me not with my transgression and grievous wrongdoing, for the same cause and force that drove me to make you mine impelled me to struggle against being yours, and to prove this, turn and look at the eyes of the now happy Lucinda, and you will see in them an excuse for all my errors, and as she has found and gained the object of her desires, and I have found in you what satisfies all my wishes. May she live in peace and contentment, and as many happy years with her Cardenio, as on my knees I pray heaven to allow me to live with my Dorothea. 
and with these words he once more embraced her and pressed his face to hers with so much tenderness that he had to take great heed to keep his tears from completing the proof of his love and repentance in the sight of all not so lucinda and cardenio and almost all the others for they shed so many tears some in their own happiness some at that of the others that one would have supposed a heavy calamity had fallen upon them all even sancho panza was weeping afterwards he said he only wept because he saw that dorothea was not as he fancied the queen might comicona of whom he had expected such great favours their wonder as well as their weeping lasted some time and then cardenio and lucinda went on and fell on their knees before don fernando returning him thanks for the favour he had rendered them in language so grateful that he knew not how to answer them and raising them up embraced them with every mark of affection and courtesy he then asked dorothea how she managed to reach a place so far removed from her own home and she in a few fitting words told all that she had previously related to cardenio with which don fernando and his companions were so delighted that they wished the story had been longer so charmingly did dorothea describe her misadventures when she had finished don fernando recounted what had befallen him in the city after he had found lucinda's bosom paper in which she declared that she was cardenio's wife and could never be his he said he meant to kill her and would have done so had he not been prevented by her parents that he quitted the house full of rage and shame and resolved to avenge himself when a more convenient opportunity should offer the next day he learned that lucinda had disappeared from her father's house and that no one could tell whither she had gone finally at the end of some months he ascertained that she was in a convent and meant to remain there all the rest of her life if she were not to share it with cardenio and as soon as he had learned this taking these three gentlemen as his companions he arrived at the place where she was but avoided speaking to her fearing that if it were known he was there stricter precautions would be taken in the convent and wa watching a time when the porter's lodge was open he left two to guard the gate and he and the other entered the convent in quest of lucinda whom they found in the cloisters in conversation with one of the nuns and carrying her off without giving her time to resist they reached a place with her where they provided themselves with what they required for taking her away all which they were able to do in complete safety as the convent was in the country at a considerable distance from the city he added that when lucinda found herself in his power she lost all consciousness and after returning to herself did nothing but weep and sigh without speaking a word and thus in silence and tears they had reached that inn which for him was reaching heaven where all the mischances of earth are over and at an end end of chapter thirty six chapter thirty seven in which is continued the story of the famous princess Mikomikona with other droll adventures. To all this Sancho listened with no little sorrow at heart to see how his hopes of dignity were fading away and vanishing in smoke, and how the fair princess Micomicona had turned into Dorothea, and the giant into Don Fernando, while his master was sleeping tranquilly, totally unconscious of all that had come to pass. Dorothea was unable to persuade herself that her present happiness was not all a dream. Cardenio was in a similar state of mind, and Lucinda's thoughts ran in the same direction don fernando gave thanks to heaven for the favour shown him and for having been rescued from the intricate labyrinth in which he had been brought so near to the destruction of his good name and of his soul and in short everybody at the end was full of contentment and satisfaction at the happy issue of such a complicated and hopeless business the curate as a sensible man made sound reflections upon the whole affair and congratulated each upon his good fortune but the one that was in the highest spirits and good humour was the landlady because of the promise cardenio and the curate had given her to pay for all the losses and damage she had sustained through don quixote's means sancho as has already been said was the only one who was distressed unhappy and dejected 
and so with a long face he went in to his master, who had just awoke, and said to him, "'Sir Rueful Countenance, your worship may as well sleep on as much as you like without troubling yourself about killing any giant or restoring her kingdom to the princess, for that is all over and settled now.' "'I should think it was,' replied Don Quixote, "'for I have had the most prodigious and stupendous battle with the giant that I ever remember having at, at all the days of my life, and with one back stroke, swish, I brought his head tumbling to the ground, and so much blood gushed forth from him that it ran in rivulets over the earth like water. Like red wine, your worship had better say, replied Sancho, for I would have you know, if you don't know it, that the dead giant is a hacked wineskin, and the blood four and twenty gallons of red wine that it had in its belly, and the cut-off head is the bitch that bore me, and the devil take it all. "'What art thou talking about, fool?' said Don Quixote. "'Art thou in thy senses?' "'Let your worship get up,' said Sancho, "'and you will see the nice business you have made of it, and what we have to pay, and you will see the queen turn into the private lady called Dorothea, and other things that will astonish you if you understand them.' "'I shall not be surprised at anything of the kind,' returned Don Quixote, "'for if thou dost remember the last time we were here, "'I told thee that everything that happened here was a matter of enchantment, "'and it would be no wonder if it were the same now.' "'I could believe all that,' replied Sancho, "'if my blanketing was the same sort of thing also. "'Only it wasn't, but real and genuine, "'for I saw the landlord, who is here to-day, "'holding one end of the blanket and jerking me up to the skies "'very neatly and smartly, and with as much laughter and strength, and when it comes to be a cause of knowing people, I hold for my part, simple and sinner as I am, there is no enchantment about it at all, but a great deal of bruising and bad luck. Well, well, God will give a remedy, said Don Quixote. Hand me my clothes and let me go out, for I want to see these transformations and things thou speakest of. Sancho fetched him his clothes, and while he was dressing, the curate gave Don Fernando and the others present an account of Don Quixote's madness and of the stratagem, they had made use of to withdraw him from that pinapobre where he fancied himself stationed because of his lady's scorn. He described to them also nearly all the adventures that Sancho had mentioned, at which they marvelled and laughed not a little, thinking it, as all did, the strangest form of madness that crazy intellect could be capable of. But now the curate said that the lady Dorothea's good fortune prevented her from proceeding with their purpose. It would be necessary to devise or discover some other way of getting him home. Cardenio proposed to carry out the scheme they had begun, and suggested that Lucinda would act and support Dorothea's part sufficiently well. "'No,' said Don Fernando, "'that must not be, for I want Dorothea to follow out this idea of hers, and if the worthy gentleman's village is not very far off, I shall be happy if I can do anything for his relief.' "'It is not more than two days' journey from this,' said the curate. "'Even if it were more,' said Don Fernando, "'I would gladly travel so far for the sake of doing so good a work.' At this moment Don Quixote came out in full panoply, with Mambrino's helmet, all dinted as it was, on his head, his buckler on his arm, and leading on his staff or pike. The strange figure he presented filled Don Fernando and the rest with amazement as they contemplated his lean yellow face, half a league long, his armor of all sorts, and the solemnity of his deportment. They stood silent, waiting to see what he would say, and he, fixing his eyes on the fair Dorothea, addressed her with great gravity and composure. I am informed, fair lady, by my squire here, that your greatness has been annihilated, and your being abolished, since from a queen and lady of high degree as you used to be, you have been turned into a private maiden. 
If this has been done by the command of the magician king, your father, the fear that I should not afford you the aid you need and are entitled to, I may tell you he did not know, and does not know, half the mass, and was little versed in the annals of chivalry, for if he had read and gone through them as intensively and deliberately as I have, he would have found at every turn that knights of less renown than mine have accomplished things more difficult. It is no great matter to kill a whelp of a giant, however arrogant he may be, for it is not many hours since I myself was engaged with one, and I will not speak of it, that they may not say I am lying. Time, however, that reveals all, will tell the tale when we least expect it. You were engaged with a couple of wineskins, and not a giant, said the landlord at this. But Don Fernando told him to hold his tongue, and on no account interrupt Don Quixote, who continued, I say in conclusion, I and this inherited lady, that if your father had brought about this metamorphosis in your person for the reason I have mentioned, you ought not attach any importance to it, for there is no peril on earth through which my sword will not force away, and with it, before many days are over, I will bring your enemy's head to the ground and place on yours the crown of your kingdom. Don Quixote said no more, and waited for the reply of the princess, who, aware of Don Fernando's determination to carry on the deception until Don Quixote had been conveyed to his home, with a great ease of manner and gravity made answer, "'Whoever told you, valiant knight of the rueful countenance, that I, under, that I had undergone any change of transformation, did not tell you the truth, for I am the same as I was yesterday. It is true that certain strokes of good fortune that have given me more than I could have hoped for have made some alteration in me, but I have not therefore ceased to be what I was before, or to entertain the same desire I've had all through of availing myself of the might of your valiant and invincible arm. And so, Signor, let your goodness reinstate the father that begot me in your good opinion, and me assure that he was a wise and prudent man, since by his craft he found out such a sure and easy way of remedying my misfortune, for I believe, Signor, that had it not been for you I should never have lit upon the good fortune I now possess, and in this I am saying what is perfectly true, as most of these gentlemen who are present can fully testify. All that remains is to set out on our journey to-morrow, for to-day we could not make much way, and for the rest of the happy results I am looking forward to, I trust to God and the valour of your heart. So said the sprightly Dorothy, and on hearing her, Don Quixote returned to Sancho, and said to him with an angry air, "'I declare now, little Sancho, thou art the greatest little villain in Spain. Say, thief and vagabond, hast thou not just told me that this princess had been turned into a maiden called... Dorothea, and that the head which I am persuaded I cut off from a giant was the bitch that bore thee, and other nonsense that put me in, in the greatest perplexity I have ever been in all my life. I vow, and here he looked to heaven and ground his teeth, I have a mind to play the mischief with thee in a way that will teach sense for the future to all lying squires of knight errands in the world. Let your worship be calm, Senor, returned Sancho. For it may well be that I have been mistaken as to the change of the lady princess my common cona, but as to the giant's head, or at least to the piercing of the wineskins and the blood being red wine, I make no mistake, as sure as there is a god, because the wounded skins are there at the head of your worship's bed, and the wine has made a lake of the room. If not, you will see when the eggs come to be fried. I mean when his worship, the landlord, calls for all the damages. For the rest... I am heartily glad that her ladyship is the queen as she was, for it concerns me as much as any one. I tell thee again, Sancho, thou art a fool, said Don Quixote. 
Forgive me, and that will do. That will do, said Don Fernando. Let us say no more about it, and as her ladyship the princess proposes to set out to-morrow because it is too late to-day, so be it, and we will pass the night in a pleasant conversation, and to-morrow we will all accompany Senor Don Quixote, for we wish to witness the valiant and unparalleled achievements he is about to perform in the course of his mighty enterprise which he has undertaken. "'It is I who shall wait upon and accompany you,' said Don Quixote, "'and I am much gratified by the favour that is bestowed upon me and the good opinion entertained of me, which I shall strive to justify, or it shall cost me my life, or even more, if it can possibly cost me more.' Many were the compliments and expressions of politeness that passed between Don Quixote and Don Fernando, but they were brought to an end by a traveller who at this moment entered the inn, and who seemed from his attire to be a Christian lately come from the country of the Moors, for he was dressed in a short-skirted coat of blue cloth with half-sleeves and without a collar. His breeches were also of blue cloth, and his hat of the same colour, and he wore yellow buckskins, and had a Moorish cutlass slung from a baldric across his breast. Behind him, mounted upon an ass, there came a woman dressed in Moorish fashion, with her face veiled and a scarf on her head, and wearing a little brocaded cap and a mantle that covered her from her shoulders to feet. The man was of a robust and well-proportioned frame, an age a little over forty, rather swarthy in complexion, with long moustache and a full beard, and, in short, his appearance was such that if he had been well-dressed he would have been taken for a person of quality and good birth. On entering, he asked for a room, and when they told him there was none in the inn, he seemed distressed, and approaching her by her dress seemed to be more, he, he took her down from the saddle in his arms. Lucinda Dorothea, the landlady, her daughter and Maritornes, attracted by the strange and to them entirely new costume, gathered round her, and Dorothea, who was always kindly, courteous, and quick-witted, perceiving that both she and the man who had brought her were annoyed at not finding a room, said to her, do not be put out, Signor, by the discomfort and want of luxuries here, for it is a way of roadside inns to be without them. Still, if you will be pleased to share our lodging with us, pointing to Lucinda, perhaps you will have found worse accommodation in the course of your journey. To this the veiled lady made no reply. All she did was to rise from her seat, crossing her hands upon her bosom, bowing her head and bending her body as a sign that she returned thanks. From her silence she concluded that she must be a moor and unable to speak a Christian tongue. At this moment the captive came up, having been until now otherwise engaged, and seeing that they all stood around his companion, and she made no reply to what they addressed to her, he said, "'Ladies, this damsel hardly understands my language, and can speak none but that of her own country, for which reason she does not and cannot answer what has been asked of her.' "'Nothing has been asked of her,' returned Lucinda. "'She has only been offered our company for this evening, and a share of the quarters we occupy, where she shall be made as comfortable as the circumstances allow. With the good will we are bound to show all strangers that stand in need of it, especially if it be a woman to whom the service is rendered.' "'On her part and my own, Signora,' replied the captive, "'I kiss your hands, and I esteem highly, as I ought, the favour you have offered, which on such an occasion, and coming from persons of your appearance, is plain to see, is a very great one.' "'Tell me, Signora,' said Dorothea, "'is this lady a Christian or a Moor? "'For her dress and her silence leads us to imagine "'that she is what we could wish she was not. "'In dress, and outwardly,' said he, "'she is a Moor. "'But at heart she is thoroughly good Christian, "'for she has the greatest desire to become one.' "'Then she has not been baptized,' returned Lucinda. "'There has been no opportunity for that,' replied the captive. "'Then she left Algiers, her native country, and home, "'and up to the present she has 
not found herself in any such imminent danger of death as to make it necessary to baptize her before she has been instructed in all the ceremonies our holy mother church ordains but please god ere long she shall be baptized with a solemnity befitting her which is higher than her dress or mind indicates by these words he excited desire in all who heard him to know who the moorish lady and the captive were but no one liked to ask just then seeing that it was a fitter moment for helping them to rest themselves than for questioning them about their lives dorothea took the moorish lady by the hand and leading her to a seat beside herself requested her to remove her veil she looked at the captive as if to ask him what they meant and what she was to do he said to her in arabic that they asked her to take off her veil and thereupon she removed it and disclosed a countenance so lovely that to dorothea she seemed more beautiful than lucinda and to lucinda more beautiful than dorothea and all the bystanders felt that if any beauty could compare with theirs it was the moorish ladies and there were even those who were inclined to give it somewhat the preference and as it is the privilege and charm of beauty to win the heart and secure good will all forthwith became eager to show kindness and attention to the lovely moor don fernando asked the captive what her name was and he replied that it was leila zoraida but the instant she heard him she guessed what the christian had asked and said hastily with some displeasure and energy no not zoraida maria maria giving them to understand that she was called maria and not zoraida these words touching earnestness with which she uttered them drew more than one tear from some of the listeners particularly the women who are by nature tender-hearted and compassionate lucinda embraced her affectionately saying yes yes maria maria to which the moor replied yes yes maria zoraida mancange which means not zoraida night was now approaching and by the orders of those who accompanied don fernando the landlord had taken care and pains to prepare for them the best supper that was in his power the hour therefore having arrived they all took their seats at a long table like a refectory one for round or square table there was none in the inn and the seat of honour at the head of it though he was refusing it they assigned to don quixote who desired the lady micomicona to place herself by his side as he was her protector lucinda and zoraida took their places next to her opposite them were don fernando and cardenio next the captive and the other gentlemen and by the side of the ladies the curate and the barber and so they supped in high enjoyment which was increased when they observed don quixote leaving off eating and moved by an impulse like that which made him deliver himself at such lengths when he supposed with the goatherds began to address them verily gentlemen if we reflect upon it great and marvellous are the things they see who make profession of the order of knight errantry say what being is there in this world who entering the gate of this castle at this moment and seeing us as we are here would suppose or imagine us to be what we are who would say that this lady who is beside me was a great queen that we all know her to be or that i am the knight of the rueful countenance trumpeted far and wide by the mouth of fame now there can be no doubt that this art and calling surpasses all those that mankind has invented and is the more deserving of being held in honour of proportion as it is the more exposed to peril. Away with those who assert that letters have the preeminence over arms. I will tell them, whosoever they may be, that they know not what they say, for the reason which such persons commonly assign, and upon which they chiefly rest, is that the labours of the mind are greater than those of the body, and that the arms give employment to the body alone, as if the calling were a porter's trade, for which nothing is more required than sturdy strength, or as if we who profess to call them arms— there were not included acts of vigour for the execution of which high intelligence is requisite, or as if it were the soul of the warrior, 
than he has an army or the defence of a city under his care, did not exert itself as much by mind as by body. Nay, see whether by bodily strength it be possible to learn or divine the intentions of the enemy, his plans, stratagems, or obstacles, or to ward off impending mischief. For all these are the work of the mind, and in them the body has no share whatsoever. Since, therefore, arms have need of the mind, as much as letters, let us see now which of the two minds, that of the man of letters, or that of the warrior, has most to do. And this will be seen by the end and goal that each seeks to attain, for that purpose is the more estimable, which has for its aim the nobler object. The end and goal of letters, I am not speaking now of divine letters, the aim of which is to raise and direct the soul to heaven, and for which an end so infinite, no other can be compared, I speak of human letters, the end of which is to establish distributive justice, to give every man that which is his, and to see and take care that good laws are observed, and and undoubtedly noble, lofty, and deserving of high praise, but not such as should be given to that sought by arms, which have for their end and object peace, the greatest boon that men can desire in this life. The first news the world and mankind received was that which the angels announced on the night that was our day, and they sang in the air, Glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth to men of good will. And the salutation which the great master of heaven and earth taught his disciples and chosen followers when they entered any house was to say, Peace be on this house. And many other times he said to them, My peace I give unto you, my peace I leave you, peace be with you. A jewel and precious gift given and left by such a hand, a jewel without which there can be no happiness either on heaven or on earth. This peace is the true end of war, and war is only another name for arms. This, then, being admitted that the end of war is peace, and that so far it has the advantages of the end of letters, let us turn to the bodily labors of the man of letters, and those of him who follows the profession of arms, and see which are the greater. Don Quixote delivered his discourse in such a manner, and in such correct language, that, for the time being, he made it impossible for any of his hearers to consider him a madman. On the contrary, as they were mostly gentlemen, to whom arms are an impertinence by birth, they listened to him with greatest pleasure as he continued. Here, then, I say, is what the student has to undergo. First of all, poverty. Not that all are poor, but to put the case as strongly as possible. And when I have said that he endures poverty, I think nothing more need to be said about his hard fortune, for he who is poor has no share of the good things of life. This poverty he suffers from in various ways, hunger or cold or nakedness or altogether, but for all that it is not so extreme but that he gets something to eat, though it may be at somewhat unseasonable hours and from the leavings of the rich. For the greatest misery of the student is that which they themselves call going out for soup, and there is always some neighbor's brazier or hearth for them, which if it does not warm at least tempers the cold to them, and lastly they sleep comfortably at night under a roof. I will not go into other particulars, as for example want of shirts, and no superabundance of shoes, thin and threadbare garments, and gorging themselves to surfeit of veracity when good luck has treated them to a banquet of some sort. By this road that I have described, rough and hard, stumbling here, falling there, getting up again to fall again, they reach the rank they desire, and that once attained, we have seen many who pass these Surtees and Sillas and Charbidiuses, as if born flying on the wings of favouring fortune. We have seen them, I say, ruling and governing the world from a chair, their hunger turned into satiety, their cold into comfort, their nakedness into fine raiment, their sleep on a mat into repose and holland and damask, 
the justly earned reward of their virtue, but, contrasted and compared with that which the warrior undergoes, all they have undergone falls far short of it, as I am now about to show. End of chapter 37 Chapter 38 Which treats of the curious discourse Don Quixote delivered on arms and letters. Continuing his discourse, Don Quixote said, as we began in the student's case with poverty and its accompaniments, let us see now if the soldier is richer, and we shall find that in poverty there is no one poorer, for he is dependent on his miserable pay, which comes late or never, or else on what he can plunder, seriously imperiling his life and conscience. And sometimes his nakedness will be so great that a slashed doublet serves him for uniform and shirt, and in the depth of winter he has to defend himself against the inclemency of the weather in the open field, with nothing better than the breath of his mouth, which I need not say, coming from an empty place, much come out cold, contrary to the laws of nature. Be sure he looks forward to the approach of night to make up for all of these discomforts on the bed that awaits him, which, unless by some fault of his, never sins by being over-narrow, for he can easily measure out on the ground as he likes, and rolling himself about on it to his heart's content without any fear of the sheet slipping away from him. Then, after all this, suppose the day and hour for taking his degree and his calling to have come. Suppose the day of battle to have arrived. When they invest him with a doctor's cap made of lint to mend some bullet hole, perhaps, that has gone through his temples or left him with a crippled leg or arm. Or if this does not happen, and merciful heaven watches over him, and keeps him safe and sound, it may be he will be in the same poverty he was in before, and he must go through more engagements and more battles, and come victorious out of all before he betters himself. But miracles of that sort are seldom seen. For tell me, sirs, if you have ever reflected upon it, by how much do those who have gained by war fall short of the number of those who have perished in it? No doubt you will reply that there can be no comparison, that the dead cannot be numbered, while the living who have been rewarded may be summed up with three figures." all which is the reverse in the case of men of letters. For by skirts, say nothing of sleeves, they all find means of support, so that though the soldier has more to endure, his reward is less. But against all this it may be urged that it is easier to reward two thousand soldiers, for the former may be remunerated by giving them places, which must perforce be conferred upon men of their calling, while the latter can only be compensated out of the way of the very property of the master they serve. But this impossibility only strengthens my argument. Putting this, however, aside, for it is a puzzling question for which it is difficult to find a solution, let us return to the superiority of arms over letters, a matter still undecided. So many are the arguments put forward on each side, for the, besides those I have mentioned, let us say that without them arms cannot maintain themselves, for war too has its laws and is governed by them, and laws belong to the domain of letters and men of letters. To this arms make answer that without them laws cannot be maintained, for by arms states are defended, kingdoms preserved, cities protected, roads made safe, seas cleared of pirates, and in short, if it were not for them, states, kingdoms, monarchies, cities, ways by sea and land would be exposed to the violence and confusion which war brings it, so long as it lasts and is free to make use of its privileges and powers. And then it is plain that whatever costs most is valued and deserves to be valued most. To attain to eminence in letters costs a man time, watching hunger, nakedness, headaches, indigestions, and other things of the sorts, some of which I have already referred to, 
but for a man to come in the ordinary course of things to be a good soldier it costs him all the student suffers and an incomparably higher degree for at each step he runs the risk of losing his life for what dread of want or poverty that can reach or harass the student can compare with what the soldier feels who finds himself beleaguered in some stronghold mounting guard in some ravelin or cavalier knows that the enemy is pushing a mine towards the post where he is stationed and cannot under any circumstances retire or fly from the imminent danger that threatens him all he can do is inform his captain of what is going on so that he may try to remedy it by a countermine and then stand his ground in fear and expectation of the moment when he will fly up to the clouds without wings and descend into the deep against his will and if this seems a trifling task let us see whether it is equalled or surpassed by the encounter of two galleys stem to stem in the midst of the open sea locked and entangled one with the other when the soldier has no more standing room than the two feet of plank in the spur and yet though he sees before him threatening as many ministers of death as there are cannon of the foe pointed at him not a land's length from his body and sees that with the first heedless step he will go down to visit the profundities of neptune's bosom with dauntless heart urged on by honour that nerves him he makes himself a target for all that musketry and struggles to cross that narrow path to the enemy's ship and what is still more marvellous no sooner has one gone down into the depths he will never rise from till the end of the world then another takes his place and if he too falls into the sea that waits for him like an enemy another and another will succeed him without a moment's pause between their deaths card and daring the greatest that all the chances of war can show happy the blessed ages that knew not the dread fury of these devilish engines of artillery whose inventor i am persuaded is in hell receiving the reward of his diabolical invention by which he made it easy for a base and cowardly arm to take the life of a gallant gentleman and that when he knows not how or whence in the height of the ardour and enthusiasm that fire and animate brave hearts there should come some random bullet discharged perhaps by one who fled in terror at a flash when he fired off his accursed machine when in an instant puts an end to the projects and cuts off the life of one who deserved to live for ages to come and thus when i reflect on this i am almost tempted to say that in my heart i repent of having adopted this profession of knight-errant in so detestable an age as we live in now for though no peril can make me fear still it gives me some uneasiness to think that powder and lead may rob me of the opportunity of making myself famous and renowned throughout the known earth by the might of my arm and the edge of my sword but heavens will be done if i succeed in my attempt i shall be all the more honoured as i face greater dangers than the knight-errants of yore expose themselves to all this lengthy discourse don quixote delivered while the others supped forgetting to raise a morsel to his lips though sancho more than once told him to eat his supper as he would have time enough afterwards to say all he wanted it excited fresh pity in those who had heard him to see a man of apparently sound sense and with rational views on every subject he discussed so hopelessly wanting in all when his wretched unlucky chivalry was in question the curate told him he was quite right in all he had said in favour of arms and that he himself though a man of letters and a graduate was of the same opinion they finished their supper the cloth was removed and while the hostess her daughter and meritorns were getting don quixote of la mancha's garret ready in which it was arranged that the women were to be quartered by themselves for the night don fernando begged the captain to tell them the story of his life for it could not fail to be strange and interesting to judge by the hints he had let fall on his arrival in company with zoraida to this the captain replied that he would very willingly yield to his request only he feared his tale would not give them as much pleasure as he wished nevertheless not to be wanting in compliance he would tell it 
The curate and the others thanked him, and added their entreaties, and he, finding himself so pressed, said there was no occasion to ask where a command had such weight, and added, If your worships will give your attention, you will hear a true story, which, perhaps, fictitious ones constructed with ingenious and studied art cannot come up to. These words made them settle themselves in their places, and preserve a deep silence, and he, seeing them waiting on his words, in mute expectation, began thus in a pleasant, quiet voice. End of chapter 38 End of chapters 36 through 38